turn to Daniel 11 if you've got your Bible. I'm going to give you all a heart attack here when I tell you that I've got 35 verses that I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is one of the longest chapters in the book. It's second only to chapter 2. There are 45 verses in Daniel chapter 11. Now, you know, we stand on the scholarship of those who've gone before us. The fact that you have a copy of God's Word in a language you can understand right there in your lap, it's nothing short of a miracle. When you think about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in inspiration, the fact that this is an inspired, infallible, inerrant Word from God, the supernatural work of preservation, the fact that though this book has been the most attacked book, it remains and the flowers may fade and the grass of the earth may perish, but the word of our God abideth forever. But then the work of translation. There's been a lot of scholarship down through the years that's gone into translation from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek and the fact that you've got a copy in English. We're grateful for scholarship. But you know, along those lines, there have been some tools down through the centuries that have been developed to help us sort of be able to situate ourselves and be familiar with the content of the 66 books of the Bible. And one of those tools is the chapter and verse divisions of the Bible. Now, you may be surprised to learn that the chapter and the verse divisions came much later. There was a guy by the name of Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, who divided the books of the Bible up into chapter-by-chapter sections. And then after him, not too long after him, there was a Frenchman by the name of Robert Estienne who added the verse divisions. And so when I tell you turn to Daniel chapter 11 and verse number 1, those tools are available to help us access the contents of Scripture. Aren't you grateful for the chapter and verse divisions? If you didn't have that... You know, we'd be thumbing through the Bible, and some of y'all would be in the New Testament by the time we were done. But so thank God for those tools. Now, you say, why are you telling me all of this? Well, because every now and then, there's an idea that's introduced at the end of one chap- chapter that's carried over into the next chapter. And so if you're not careful, you'll be reading, and you'll assume that just because a new chapter verse division begins that it's perhaps a totally unrelated subject from the previous chapter. And that's not the case. Because chapters 10, 11, and 12 form a unity in the book of Daniel and have to be understood together because it's the longest prophetic vision that's given in the book. And so when you come to Daniel 11 and verse 1 and you notice that it begins this way, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, you may be tempted to believe that that's Daniel who's beginning this section, just like other chapters begin in a very familiar way, a similar way. But realize that in chapter 10, there's an angelic messenger who is speaking to Daniel, and his message that begins in chapter 10 is carried over into chapter 11. And so the content then of this prophetic vision given to Daniel is found in chapter 11. The context, that's in chapter 10. What's the context? Well, the context is this, uh, Daniel had been praying. Daniel had an experience with 
who I believe is the glorified Son of Man figure. He, he sees the Son of Man in his glory, pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. A very similar thing happens to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos in the first uh, uh, chapter of Revelation. On the heels of that, I believe that there's some angelic communication that Daniel begins receiving there uh, in, at the end of chapter 10. And the context of this vision, the angel tells Daniel that there were some things happening in an unseen, invisible realm by way of spiritual warfare in response to Daniel's praying that Daniel didn't know about. But the conflict that was happening behind the scenes in the air was impacting the conflict that would happen on the ground in terms of political conflict and kingdoms that would rise and kingdoms that would fall and hardship and difficulty for God's people in the land. All of that conflict is now described for us with great detail here in chapter 11. And so Daniel chapter 11 is a prophetic vision, the content of which this angelic messenger is telling Daniel of all that God's people could expect by way of the future. Now, in Daniel's day, all of chapter 11, all of this that was given was still future. But as I'm going to show you, at least through verse 35 in Daniel chapter 11, this is all ancient history to us. But it was future and prophecy in Daniel's day. Now, let's begin reading there in verse number 1, Daniel chapter 11. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he's become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance... And uh, the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants and he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place and shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail." He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress." Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. 
And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail." And then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand." He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face backward toward the fortress, the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. And then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger or in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with the small people." Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder and spoil and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant." And he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate, or the abomination 
of desolation. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame and by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Whew! Man, that's a lot of Scripture to read, isn't it? A lot of details in this particular passage. And lest we forget, the Apostle Paul told Timothy that Timothy, a pastor, was to give himself to the public reading of Scripture. And so if for no other reason we're simply being obedient to the command of the Lord here, of reading this text, understand the value that when the Word of God is read, even when there's detailed passages and things we may not quite understand, we trust that the Holy Spirit of God is taking the inspired Word of God as it washes over our lives and He's sanctifying us as His people. So when you look at this chapter, I want to speak really from this subject, a preview of coming atrocities. Not attractions, mind you, but atrocities. It would serve you well to go through this chapter and maybe underline the number of times that you find words like war, conflict, attack, uh, the idea of violence and war and conflict and bloodshed. These 35 verses really soak with the blood of those that have been spilt in conflict and in combat all in the name of conquest. And when you understand this in, in light of the context of chapter 10, that the things happening on the ground ultimately are being influenced by the things in the air, it'll help you understand why there's so much conflict recorded in this particular text. Now, one of the things that we've noticed as we've made our way through the book of Daniel is that so much of the prophecy that's given uh, is sort of, um, it's given in a way in which Daniel is given a wide, broad vision of future events. And then, on the heels of that, attention falls in on one specific time period. Uh, we saw this in chapter 2 with the prophecy, the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the, 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 the image that was made up of all of those different types of metals. And then the biblical text deals with that, the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, which represents Babylon and the strength of Babylon. Well, in chapter 8, you remember the prophecy of the, the ram and the goat and how the, the male goat destroyed uh, the ram. And that all of that was symbolic of how the Greek empire overtook the Persian empire, which before had overtook Babylon. And from that Greek empire, there was one prominent horn that was broken into four parts. And from one of those four parts, there was a little horn that emerged. And uh, all of that pointed to Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a leader uh, who persecuted the people of God and in many ways became a prototype of the future Antichrist. Now what you need to understand with chapter 11 is that chapter 11 is sort of a zoomed-in view of that prophecy that was given earlier in chapter 8. 
and in particular the Greek Empire and what would come out of the Greek Empire as it impacted the people of Israel. And so I'm not going to make my way through all of these details uh, in this particular text. We'd be here all day if we did that. If you've got an ESV study Bible, the study notes in that ESV study Bible are probably about the best that I've seen uh, to show you how all of this through verse 35 has been fulfilled to the letter in history. And it all had to do with those empires that emerged out of the conquered Persian Empire, the conquered Greek Empire, and how it all affected the people of Israel who were living back in the land. In fact, some Bible scholars have estimated that there are upwards of 135 specific prophecies that are fulfilled uh, in verses 1 through 35 of Daniel chapter 11. And so specific is this particular chapter that liberal scholarship has come along and wants to discredit the book of Daniel and say, no, it was not the historical Daniel who wrote that in the 6th century, but it was was someone writing under Daniel's name in the 2nd century B.C. And their reason for rejecting the authorship of Daniel is because chapter 11 is so very specific. And they say there's no way that Daniel could have been so specific in his prophecy. To which I simply say, the Lord Jesus Christ attributed the authorship of Daniel to the historical Daniel. Are you smarter than Jesus is? Folks, you have no problem whatsoever believing uh, the, the, the specifics of Bible prophecy if you believe in an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God who is completely sovereign over the events of history and if he so chooses to be very specific in what he reveals concerning the future that's his prerogative and that's exactly what he does here and someone says well why is there so much detail given and the reason is because of how it all impacts those Jewish exiles who had made their way back home to Israel Ezra tells us that there were 42,000 only a remnant as compared to those many, many thousands that went into Babylonian captivity when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. So if I were to separate or give an outline to this particular chapter, here's here's what I would do. I would say that verses one through four represent, first of all, political transitions. If this is a preview of coming atrocities that God's people could be on the lookout for, the first thing that they would notice is that it involved political transitions. And in the first few verses, the angel tells Daniel that the next several decades would be marked by political transitions until the Persian kingdom would fall to the Greeks. Verse 1 takes us from the time of Cyrus all the way to the death of Alexander in verse number 4, and that's approximately 215 years of history. So keep in mind that there is a wide swath of history that's being covered here in just a few verses as this chapter begins. And again, keep in mind the fact that there's a spiritual dimension that's already been revealed here. The angel had been in battle in chapter 10 against the prince of Persia or the demonic principality behind the kingdom of Persia. At the close of chapter 10, he tells Daniel that he would soon be engaged in combat with the prince of Greece, who would step onto the scene in the future. 
And all of it is just a reminder that the political conflicts that we see and we experience on the ground, ultimately they're influenced by these spiritual powers that be or angelic principalities. As God's people, it's absolutely imperative that we understand that and that will really help you process all of the political strife that's happening even in our own day. And if you understand that, you'll value prayer all the more. Uh, You'll be that much more patient with people in your life. When you realize that ultimately, like Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness in, in heavenly places. And so the prophecy begins by mentioning a few more kings of Persia, followed by a fourth king who would surpass them all in wealth. History knows him as Xerxes, or Ahasuerus as he's referred to in the book of Esther. And the only thing really that the the text emphasizes about him in verse 2 is that he stirred up everybody against the kingdom of Greece. History tells us that Xerxes commanded perhaps one of the largest militaries in all of the world in ancient history, and he was defeated At the Battle of Salamis, the Persian navy was soundly defeated by the Greeks. And, 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 but what that did was it sort of caused the Greeks to sort of live with this resentment toward the Persians. It was something they never forgot that Xerxes and the Persians thought they could conquer the Greeks. And so, years down the road, a century or more down the road, there's a young guy by the name of Alexander who determines that he's going to conquer the Persian empire and in so doing conquer the entire world and that's exactly what Alexander sets out to do and by the time he's 33 Alexander dies at a young age he has no heir to his throne and so his kingdom is then parceled out among his four generals and that's what's spoken of there prophetically in verse number four I mean with just specific detail And then, here's what happens. Uh, You'll notice that there are a couple of phrases that are used multiple times as you get through chapter 11. It's the phrase, king of the south, king of the north. There's this battle that's always going on between the king of the south and the king of the north. Now, that's not referring to the union and the confederacy, okay? But, But two of those four generals became more prominent You had Ptolemy who took the south and Egypt. You had Seleucus who took the north and Syria and parts of Asia Minor to the east uh, of Syria. And these two kings established two dynasties known as the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south and the Seleucid dynasty in the north. And for a period of 130 years, they constantly fought over territory. Now, you know what was in the middle of their territories, the teeny tiny little nation of Israel. And so the reason that so much detail is given really from verse five all the way through verse 20 uh, is because of how these warring kingdoms and the fallout from their conflict, how it impacted the people of God who were living there in the land. So political transition gives way And in verse 5 through verse 20, that gives way to what I'm calling perpetual turmoil. And isn't that a fact? How political transition often gives rise to turmoil and conflict. We wouldn't know anything about that as Americans in 2021, would we? 
but turmoil. Uh, there's this constant fighting that's going to be. So verses 2 through 20 cover a time period of 355 years and a succession of kings, especially in that northern kingdom and that southern kingdom of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So amazingly, though, you get down to verse 21, and from verse 21 through verse 20, uh, 35, the time frame is only 12 years. So you've got 19 verses from verse 2 to verse 20. That covers a period of time of 355 years. And then you've got 15 verses from verse 21 to verse 35 that covers a period of 12 years. And it sort of uh, hones in on, zooms in on one of those northern kings, Antiochus Epiphanes. Best way I can describe what's going on here, it's like uh, when you watch the race. Any of you NASCAR fans, when you watch the race, I've only been to one NASCAR race in my lifetime. But, you know, the Goodyear blimp is flying around most of these major sporting events. And at NASCAR, the Goodyear blimp is there. And if you're watching the race on television, uh, you know, usually whenever you're coming back from commercial, the camera shot is from the Goodyear blimp. However far it is above the racetrack. And you're able to see all the cars from that angle as they're making their way around that track, whether it be Charlotte Motor Speedway or Talladega or wherever else. But then... As the race is going on, the camera angle changes from the Goodyear blimp to turn four. There's a camera in turn four. And all of a sudden, you're able to see those cars up close and personal as they're coming around turn four. Well, here's what the Spirit of God is doing. Uh, The angel is taking Gabriel from the Goodyear blimp all the way to turn four by the time you get to verse 21. And he's focusing Daniel's attention in on this one ruler who's coming, who's going to be unlike anything that Israel has experienced before, and he's going to be a prophetic picture of what Israel has to look forward to as far as the end of time. And he will sort of be a type of the Antichrist who is to come. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. All right, but again, a Conflict, bloodshed, violence, war. This is what humanity is apart from the intervening grace of God. And someone says, well, where does war come from? Where does all of this conflict come from? Why is there so much bloodshed in this chapter? Why is there so much bloodshed that fills the annals of human history? Nobody answers that question any better than James does in James chapter 4 when he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? He says, is it not this, your lusts that are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, and what do you do? You murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. It's amazing, in that passage, James mentions three ways that we're often at war as human beings, sinful human beings. Uh, He says we're at war with others, verse one. He talks about quarrels and wars and fights among you, that is, relationships. What's true of nations is true of individuals. Nation goes to war with nation, but it's often just the result of spiraled chaos when relations go south, relationships go south, and individuals, their relationship goes south. Some of you are at war with someone right now in your life. Maybe a member of your own household. Maybe someone else in this body. 
Maybe someone that you work with. Where does that conflict come from? Ultimately, that conflict stems from self that's enthroned in your heart. That's what James is saying. When self is enthroned in the heart, it boils over into conflict in our relationships with people. And then we're we're at war with others. We're, We're at war with ourselves. James puts his finger on the issue and says, really, it's all because of your selfish lusts. We all look out for numero uno. But then ultimately, James even goes further and says, the reason that we're at war with others, the reason we're at war with ourselves is because we're all at war with omnipotence. Humanity in lostness is in rebellion against God. And so what you see here in Daniel chapter 11, you see these warring nations and these warring kingdoms and murder and bloodshed and covetousness and desire for conquest. And it's all symptomatic of the greater issue and that's the human heart and the fact that the human heart is in rebellion against Almighty God. All of the division and all of the turmoil that we've experienced this last year in our country, we trace it back to one core issue whether it be political strife, whether it be racial division. Listen to me. The the core issue is that we want to be boss. We want to be in charge. I want to be enthroned in my own heart. And God says you can't have it that way. Jesus is Lord. And the moment you declare that Jesus is Lord, all of hell will declare war against you So that's what's going on here in Daniel 11. Political transition that leads to perpetual turmoil. And then, verses 21 through 35, prophetic type. There's a prophetic type in this eighth Seleucid king of the north known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes is a prototype of the Antichrist to come. And in many ways, He's an accurate prototype of every dictator and political ruler who thinks that his way is better than God's way, who hates God's truth, who militates against God's people, who thinks that he's smarter, that he's wiser, and ultimately who thinks that he himself is God. Antiochus was one of the first to come along and say, government is God. Epiphanes means God manifest. Essentially, that was his his idea. He he thought that he was God. And Antiochus, there's so much information given about him in verse 21 through 35. It's, It's all because of the way that his ideologies and his persecution directly impacted the people of God there in the land of Israel. And yet, he's going to serve as this stamp or this pattern of this future antichrist figure who's going to emerge onto the world scene. Paul refers to him as the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The apostle John refers to him as antichrist in his epistles. He's the beast of Revelation 13. So so here's the thing. Folks, You look at all of these details and you wonder, what is the big deal? The big deal is 
God has been preparing the world scene for the end. Go back through chapter 11 and notice the number of times that you find this phrase mentioned, appointed time. The time that's appointed. Or the time of the end. And then you get to verse 35 and you'll notice that the time of the end is emphasized there. It still awaits the appointed time. And then it's almost as if prophecy leaps from the page and from the time of Antiochus zooms all the way out to that future time when Antichrist is going to step onto the scene and he is going to be described there at the end of Daniel chapter 11. And so we see the same thing kind of happening in Daniel chapter 11 that we saw in the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. Now I want to throw a caboose on all of this and give you some things to take home by way of some application. Why is all this important? Listen to me. It reminds us to begin with that times and circumstances are in the hands of a sovereign and omnipotent God. No matter how violent the day, no matter what's going on as far as the world stage is concerned, our times and our circumstances are in the hands of an omnipotent God. It's all appointed somehow, some way in his Wisdom and providence, God is moving history. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He's moving it toward the time of the end when Christ will come and Christ will establish his kingdom. In fact, it's this very message that the Apostle Paul preaches uh, there on uh, Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. All of the, the men of Athens and the thinkers of Athens were all there. And, 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 and Paul basically tells them, listen, you're worshiping an unknown God. Let me tell you who he is. He's the God who's fixed appointed seasons and times. The God before whom all of us are accountable. That's true for nations, but that's true for you as an individual man or woman. The God who commands nations, who sets up kings and takes down kings, he's the same God who is involved in the details of your life, who knows what's going on in your life. A second lesson is this. I take this away from Daniel chapter 11. Even God's people are not exempt from suffering and hardship. Here you have Israel, they're caught in the crosshairs of all that's going on for 130 some years between these, these Seleucid kings and these Ptolemaic kings. Israel's right here caught in the middle of it. You think they signed up for that when they all went back and their kids were born in the land and they're just trying to be the people of God and trying to serve God faithfully right there looking for the messianic hope that had been promised to Abraham and to David who was promised by God that he would never have uh, there would never be a time when he didn't have a, a descendant seated upon the throne of the kingdom. That's what they were looking forward to. But instead, they're, they're trying to eke out a living in the land. And here you have these invaders from the north and invaders from the south, and they're fighting each other, and somehow they're caught up in the middle of it all. Not to mention that things get so bad that one of those northern dictators takes out his frustration and persecutes God's people, profanes God's temple, demands that the people worship Zeus, <laughs> kind of sounds a little bit like Christians today who are just trying to faithfully serve God be salt and be light and we get caught up in all kinds of conflict in the world that's happening around us and we wonder what's going on where's it all headed 
The way gets tough. Listen, there is no pain like experiencing a little bit of persecution for your faith, but over and over again, Jesus prepared his disciples for this. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, he said. It's not going to be a cakewalk for my followers. You're going to experience persecution, but be of good cheer, Jesus said. I've overcome the world by means of his own death and resurrection. Jesus Christ has dealt with fought the battle and won the day single-handedly. And then listen, let me tell you one final lesson. Knowing God personally is your strength when it comes to facing the future. Whatever that future may hold for you. Whether it involves conflict or whether it involves cancer. Whether it involves pain of loss in someone you love or whether it involves persecution for your faith, knowing God personally is your strength when it comes to facing the future. I think verse 32 of Daniel 11 is my favorite verse from this entire book. In spite of all that's going on, Daniel is reminded that the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. No matter what's going on in the world around me, no matter what's happening in your life, those who know their God intimately and personally through faith in Jesus Christ can stand firm when all hell around them rages and they can take action. And isn't that a good word? A couple of weekends back, Anita and I stole away for a few days. We, we spent Saturday two weeks ago on uh, the battlefield there at Gettysburg. And uh, it was all snow-covered, and, and we sort of did the audio tour, so we, we spent the whole afternoon driving around the battlefields and seeing all of the sights, and the, the tour guide was, was listening to the tour guide via CD in, in, uh, in my car. But we drove up to Little Round Top and Big Round Top, which if you're familiar with that, history, you remember that that was the strategic high ground that was held by the Union Army. And, and after three days of combat, January or uh, July 1, 2, and 3, after more than 50,000 casualties, the Confederate Army was defeated there at Gettysburg, and it became a decisive moment that really led to the preservation of the Union. Well, a couple of years before that, there was a doctor and his wife who made a trip to visit a Union Army camp. It was just outside of Washington, D.C. The doctor was Samuel Howe. His wife, her name was Julia, Julia Howe. And while she was there in that camp that day, she happened to overhear a group of soldiers singing a tune. She didn't approve of the lyrics that they were singing, but the tune really stuck in her mind. And she felt like the tune was a beautiful tune. It just needed some better lyrics. So the next morning, she got up extra early. And she said to herself, if I don't write this down, I'll lose it. And so that morning, she wrote down these lyrics to that tune that she had heard the day before. And here's, here's the lyrics. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed his fateful lightning, his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. I've seen him in the watchfire of a hundred circling camps. They've builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. 
I've read his fiery gospel written in rows of burnished steel. As you deal with my condemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. And he has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He's sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. And aren't you glad to be on the march with him? Let's stand. Let's pray. Oh, hallelujah. Lord, thank you. And no matter the conflict that rages because of the political transitions of this world and the constant turmoil that the enemy stirs up, those invisible, unseen forces, evil forces at work. God, may we be people of prayer in our day. May we be men and women of faith who look for the coming of Jesus Christ. May we as a church be vigilant to pray. May we be engaged, Lord, in sharing the gospel and speaking the truth and pointing people the hope of our Savior. And may we be reminded, Lord, that the people who know their God will stand firm in tough times and they will take action. So, Lord, for those under the sound of my voice today who feel like they're in the heat of conflict, whether it be marital conflict, whether it be family strife, issues on the job, relationships with others, Lord, that may just not be what they need to be, Help them remember the ultimate source and reason behind that conflict often is selfishness. And the cure to that is Christ being enthroned in our hearts. It's not about me, what I want, what I need. It's about Jesus and Him being glorified in me and through me. Lord, for the one that doesn't know you as his or her Savior today, my prayer is that in an altar of repentance and faith in Jesus, understanding that Jesus died for their sin on the cross and rose again from the dead, Lord, may people turn from their sin and be saved as they trust you in saving faith. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.